This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome back our returning celebrity guest scorer, who was only on a few weeks ago, Allison Techmeyer. Hello, everyone. Apparently you just sunk a putt. That's a little bit more than the golf clap. But given that she apparently uh, prides herself on her shark capabilities at mini golf. I am, I don't, I'm not proud of it. I don't understand it. I'm like, yeah. Might be the only athletic endeavor that she's good at. I wasn't bad at figure skating. Tonight, for our 174th episode, we again <laughs> revisit one of our favorite. <laughs> Tonight, for our 174th episode, we again revisit one of our favorite movies on the show. Casablanca from 1942, directed by Michael Curtiz, written by Julius J. Epstein, Philip G. Epstein, and Howard Koch. Music by Max Steiner, Humphrey Bogart as Rick Blaine, Ingrid Bergman as Ilsa Lund, Paul Henreid as Victor Laszlo, Claude Rains as Captain Louis Reynaud, Conrad Veet as Major Heinrich Strasser, Sidney Greenstreet as Senor Ferrari, Peter Lorre as Senor Ugarte, Kurt Bois as Pickpocket, Leonid Kinski as Sasha, Madeline LeBeau as Yvonne, Joy Page as Anina Brandel, S.Z. Sakal, also credited as S.K. Sakal, as Carl, and Dooley Wilson as Sam. Recognition for this movie? Casablanca premiered at the Hollywood Theater in New York City on November 26, 1942, to capitalize on Operation Torch, which was... Invasion of Morocco and North Africa. Correct, and the subsequent capture of Casablanca. It went into general release on January 23, 1943, to take advantage of the Casablanca Conference, a high-level meeting in the city between British Prime Minister Winston Churchill and who was the president, Boomer? Oh, uh, Roosevelt? Very good. Yes. <laughs> I didn't want to say the wrong thing, so... <laughs> And who commanded Operation Torch? Oh, God. Truman? I don't know. Uh, no. Eisenhower. Eisenhower? That was my other guess. The Office of War Information prevented screening of the film to troops in North Africa, believing it would cause resentment among Vichy supporters in the region. In its initial American release, Casablanca was a substantial but not spectacular box office success, earning $3.7 million, equivalent to $47 million in 2020. A 50th anniversary re-release grossed $1.5 million in 1992. According to Warner Brothers Records, the film earned $3.4 million domestically and $3.4 in foreign markets. Casablanca was nominated for Best Actor for Humphrey Bogart, Supporting Actor for Claude Rains, Cinematography Black and White, Film Editing and Score. It won for Best Picture, Director for Curtiz, and Screenplay for Epstein, Epstein, and Coke. In 1989, the film was one of the first 25 films selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. In 2005, it was named one of the 100 greatest films of the last 80 years by Time Magazine. The films were not ranked. 
Bright Lights Film Journal stated in 2007, it is one of the rare films from Hollywood's golden age which has managed to transcend its era to entertain generations of moviegoers. Casablanca provides 21st century Americans with an oasis of hope in a desert of arbitrary cruelty and senseless violence. The film also ranked at number 28 on Empire's list of the 100 greatest movies of all time, which stated, Love, honor, thrills, wisecracks, and a hit tune are among the attractions, which also include a perfect supporting cast of villains, sneaks, thieves, refugees, and bar staff. But it's Bogart and Bergman's show, entering immortality as screen lovers reunited only to part. The irrefutable proof that great movies are accidents. Screenwriting teacher Robert McGee maintains that the script is the greatest screenplay of all time. And in 2006, the Writers Guild of America agreed, voting it the best ever in its list of the 101 greatest screenplays. In 1998, for AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies, it was number 2. In 2001, for its 100 Years 100 Thrills, it was number 37. In 2002, for 100 Years 100 Passions, it was number 1. In 2003, it was AFI's 100 Years 100 Heroes and Villains, with the number 4 hero being Rick Blaine. In 2004, AFI's 100 Years 100 Songs, As Time Goes By, placed at number 2. In 2005, AFI's 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes had six different ones from this movie, including, I believe, four of them just from the final scene alone. Here's looking at You Kid, placed at number 5. Number 20 was Louie, I think this is the beginning of A Beautiful Friendship. Number 28, Play It Sam, Play As Time Goes By. 32, Round Up the Usual Suspects. 43, We'll Always Have Paris. And number 67, of all the gin joints and all the towns and all the world, she walks into mine. These six lines were the most of any film, along with Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz, tied for second with three apiece among each of them. Also nominated for the list was Ilsa, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. 2006, it was nominated for AFI's 100 Years, 100 Cheers at number 32. And for the 2007 100 Years, 100 Movies 10th Anniversary Edition, this was the number three movie on their list. It currently holds a 99% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 100 score on Metacritic, which is unheard of, and a 4.3 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, as we do most weeks, and I'm sure, Dad, this is a bit of a repeat from the first two times that we've discussed this film, but what is your relationship to this movie? This is a movie that uh, I think I saw college and have tried to watch every once in a while. I, actually, I think I'd probably watch it once or twice a year because to me it's just a perfect movie. It's something you don't have to think about. It's something you don't have to be in the right mood for. It's just a good story. I know that most of my history with this movie is watching it as a family or being introduced to it through you. But Allison, what would you say is your relationship with this film? I don't remember ever seeing it until about a year ago. Um, I remember hearing about it on Gilmore Girls growing up and was like, okay. And then I remember rewatching that show and being like, oh, I guess I should watch that. And then watching it with Keith. That's, that's really all I have for it. Is I watched it. I remember watching it about a year ago. And it was a really good movie. So I was, yeah, I thought, okay. Well, at least it's one thing the Gilmore Girls had correct. I like Gilmore Girls. 
So what would you say this movie is about? Since we both had our multiple cracks at this. I don't know. This movie is, I guess for me, it's about sort of finding things, but then having to let them go and learning what's important and how to continue on through everything. Dad, do you want to take another stab at this? Unfortunately, I don't know. I mean, I, I, how many times I go through this, it, it's kind of almost a Rorschach test because every time I watch it, I get a little bit different idea of what the movie's about. I think this time watching it, I realize that sometimes your own personal desires, needs, your own love has to take a back seat to what is right and what is in the greater good. And so that I think to that extent, that's what I think the movie is about this time. It's probably going to change the next time I see it. I guess some of that is probably true. I think the most striking thing for me this time was is that it seemed overt in its metaphor towards Blaine being the representation of America getting into the war again and how much he would have to personally sacrifice for a sense of duty and honor. And that's why I wonder if this is the great American film. I know that several critics have mentioned this in passing that it gets at what I think the ideal of what people believe about America would be represented through this film. Handsome, striking, but self-sacrificing in the end to do the right thing. I, I do think that's more of the idealistic version of what we'd like America to be, even if we don't necessarily live up to that. It is, in essence, the mantra of the greatest generation, as Tom Brokaw has called it. So do we want to get some more background on this film? Dad, are you ready with a plot summary for us? Yes. In the exotic melting pot of Casablanca during World War II, Rick Blaine, Humphrey Bogart, a jaded and enigmatic American expatriate, runs a swanky nightclub that attracts a colorful cast of characters seeking refuge from the chaos of war. When a mysterious and beautiful woman from his past, Ilsa Lund, Ingrid Bergman, walks into his club with her husband, resistance leader, Victor Laszlo, Paul Henreid, Rick's life takes an unexpected turn. As the flames of romance reignite, Rick finds himself torn between personal desire and a higher sense of duty, forcing him to navigate a treacherous web of loyalty, love, and sacrifice. In this timeless tale of heartache and redemption, Casablanca proves to be more than just a backdrop. It becomes a crucible of emotions, where the fate of individuals and nations hang in the balance. Acclaimed for its unforgettable dialogue, poignant performances, and a hauntingly beautiful score, Casablanca captures the essence of love's complexities in the midst of turbulent times. This cinematic masterpiece, directed by Michael Curtiz, represents an enduring symbol of classic Hollywood storytelling and continues to resonate with audiences worldwide. Thank you. Did you know? Like most film stars, Bogart seemed larger than life. 
but in person he stood five foot eight tall. Bergman, however, was almost two inches taller, and as a result, director Michael Curtiz had Bogey stand on blocks or sit on cushions to make him seem taller than Bergman. Did you know? At the time Casablanca was made, censors used a heavy hand when it came to Hollywood films, and in a later interview, Julius Epstein remembered just how stringent they were. Quote, The main thing that affected our work in those days was that we were so handcuffed by censorship. Remember, the nation shook when Clark Gable said damn in Gone with the Wind, remembered Epstein, who said at the time you couldn't even show a woman getting divorced. Still, when they wrote Casablanca, they tried to sneak stronger language past the censors. I remember after a long time we could finally say hell, but it had to be a sparse use of hell, Epstein recalled. So what we would do was write 50 hells and then bargain with them. We'd say, how about 25? We'd wind up with maybe two or three. Did you know? The music for the film was written by Max Steiner, an Austrian-born Hungarian-Jewish composer and arranger who gained fame for his score for Gone with the Wind and King Kong. The classic song, As Time Goes By, was included in the original play, but Steiner didn't like it and wanted it excluded from the film adaptation. But Bergman had already shot the scenes with the song and cut her hair for her next role so they couldn't be reshot, and the song stayed. After the movie was released, As Time Goes By spent 21 weeks on the hit parade. Steiner later admitted that the song, quote, must have been something to attract so much attention. And with that, we'll take our first break, and we will be right back with the Stanley Rubric. Before we jump back into the episode, next week, for our 175th episode, we discuss our third Stanley Kubrick film, 2001, A Space Odyssey, written and directed by Stanley Kubrick, co-written by Arthur C. Clarke, starring Keir Delea, Gary Lockwood, and William Sylvester. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Dad, do you remember the other two that we've done so far from Stanley Kubrick? I don't even know who that is, so... He was a director. I got that much. The Shining and... Oh, boy. His other 1980s film. Oh, uh, Full Metal Jacket. There you go. Well, are we ready to debate the Stanley rubric on this one? This had been the number one film on the list until two weeks ago. All right. We have the original and then the second Legacy score, and then we can kind of talk through the rest of these. So Legacy is up first. The original score was a 9.75. Our second Legacy score on this one was a 9.88. Dad, how about you go first, since this is kind of one of your passion movies? Yes, and in retrospect, I'm going to drop down. I'm going to go with the industry as being... 4.5 and the public being 4.5 for a 9. Wow. The reason is is that even though it's in fact I'm going to change it just a bit. I'm going to go with the industry being a 5 because the industry holds it in higher esteem. I think the public has lost some of the interest in the film. They know it. They know the lines and they know a lot about it but there's a lot of people now that just do not watch black and white film and they don't really get into it. I think the people that really appreciated it in the public are kind of aging out or passing on. So I'm going to go with a 9.5. 
So I'm caught on this one. I originally would have thought that I would have gone with the exact number you did for your 9.5. I think it's a clear five with the industry. We went through all the accolades that it had already at the time and in the future. I mean, as far as American movies go, this is about as high on the legacy score. Like if you were to do groupings, this is among maybe 20, 25 films that you could say are probably the American classics. Its name recognition is high, even among the public now, even though they haven't seen it. I think a lot of the lines have transcended its era and time, and people know certain pieces of this movie, even if they've never seen it, because it's blended into pop culture. But I do think that it has waned a little bit, because the onus for people to watch a gosh, 80-year-old film that's in black and white is just not as high. So while we will watch this movie once, twice a year, in fact, I think we've done it twice now in the last six weeks, it's just not a film that I think that the general public is clamoring to watch over. And so because I'm caught somewhere between a 9.5 and a 10, kind of petering back and forth, I think I'm going to agree with our original assessment on this one and go a 9.75. So, Allison, what do you think? You're the new variable in this conversation. I would say for the industry, I'll give it the five just because it has done so much and had won so many awards. But I'm going to go with a four for the public just because like, so many of my... I don't think I know a single person in my generation besides Thomas who's seen this movie. Like, none of my friends or coworkers or anyone is like, we've heard of it and we know a lot about it, but like, I don't think anyone's seen it. And it's just not going past that. So I'm going to stick with a four on that. Well, that puts us in a bit of a quandary. I mean, the way we've been doing these revisit episodes recently is, is that we have to compromise on these. So the high number is a 9.75. The low number is a nine. Theoretically, I think if I did the math correctly on this one, and I probably didn't because I'm just doing it on the fly, it's going to end up somewhere around if we were to take a base average at like a 9.38, I think. That still feels a little low. While I understand and appreciate people of the younger generation, there are still several generations ahead of it that are still familiar with and have seen the film that I don't think we can discount either. And I understand, especially in this day and age, TV has taken over as the main entertainment art form comparative to movies, and people are less willing to sit down. And even though this is, what, 100 minutes max? It's uh, one hour and 42 minutes. So Okay, yeah. so on, uh, 102. It still is probably too long for some people. So I mean, that's always my problem with watching a movie, is I never have the attention span. Like, it took me... Like, probably three hours to watch it because I kept stopping and doing other things just because I get so fidgety. And this from a teacher. I constantly am on the go as a teacher. I'm constantly changing what I'm doing and moving, and I'm never stationary for more than a couple of minutes. It's just, I can't do that. And so I have trouble watching TV, watching a movie. My husband's always whining because I'm always playing on my phone when we're trying to watch TV or anything. And when you try to put in a movie, it's, I'm doomed. I, I cannot make it through. I, I'd have a hard time putting it below a 9.5. I, 
I get the, what you're saying about that there's so many other generations who are still watching it, but those generations are slowly fading. And even then, yeah, they may have watched it, but are they continuing to watch it? Are they continuing to talk about it? It's not really a thing that many people are referencing who aren't really into film. Yeah, they may have seen it once or twice, but it's not like a common thing anymore. And it's just the, it's fading and it's, it's not going to have as big of an impact anymore as it did once. We're not talking impact. That's the next I, category. Okay, entirely, yes. But, I, but like, I just don't think people are going to watch it as much. Even, I know it's doing a dad's favorites. That's why he's seen it so many times. But how many other people do you know in your generation, dad, who watch this movie that frequently? Well, frequent is a different thing. Or watch it in general. Like, they may have seen it, but how much, but do they watch it? I am not the right person to be asking this because, one, I have one side of the spectrum who would never watch this. And then I have on the other side of the spectrum where that's all they do is discuss movies. So I said, Dad, he knows people outside of this. Yeah, but even his is a limited diversity of people. The people I work with on a regular basis are not going to be watching this movie on a weekend. They're not going to be talking about it. Like, they're not talking about this movie. They're not thinking about it in terms of, you know, what you guys are. They're, they're like, oh, it was a movie. I watched it once or twice, and now it's whatever. They don't think about it. They don't. But that's with all movies generally. Yeah. So that shouldn't be necessarily hindering it. This should be against the movie-going public, the people who actually spend time watching it. And I do think it has a higher recognition and legacy among those people. Well, if you're just talking about people who watch movies, that changes everything instead of just the general public. Yes, but it's assumed that the general public means those that actually bother to watch movies. I couldn't give you anything as far as, unless it's a Will Ferrell film, that my friend Ben has ever seen. Like, he just doesn't watch movies. He'd rather be out in the woods hunting. But trying to gain him in a, as a movie opinion and use him for my argument is folly because it's not like he's watching a wide swath of movies. When you're talking about the audience, you want to say casual moviegoers. And people who are at least casual moviegoers, people who are interested in classic film, I do think have a preponderance that they've probably all seen this. Casual moviegoers versus those who are interested in classic movies, two different categories. I don't think necessarily that's true. I do think there is there is a bit of a different Because you have to gap. be more into it to be into the classic things. You have to be more interested in going out and good. It's not just a casual thing for you anymore if you're going into the classics and you're de digging deeper into movies. It's no longer a casual thing. Not necessarily true. With the preponderance that we've had for 30 years with TCM and that we still have on streaming... It's not like this movie hasn't been available or on in a lot of places over a long period of time. So if you're a casual moviegoer and this is just on, you may just decide to sit and watch it. It's not nearly to the level of a bunch of these 90s films like Shawshank Redemption, but it's still at least something that's been widely available to the public in a way it wasn't in the you know first couple of decades Dad was alive. Okay, but let's say that it's on DirecTV and people are flipping through the channels or they're looking at HBO or any of these other things and they're flipping through. The likelihood of them picking this movie is a lot lower because it is black and white and because it is old. Which I baked in, but then you also have to talk about the name recognition and the ID. 
I already said in my argument that from the top, there are a lot of people that probably haven't seen this movie, but there are pieces from this that have pierced the culture. While I can't quite get to the 10 that I think at one point dad would have liked me to, and I do think it is falling a little bit in critical stature, especially among those that are much heavier into trying to uh, secure a more well-rounded international inclusion. This is still a film that if you're at all connected to the film industry, if you're at all interested in the film industry, you've probably seen. And then there's that ring outside of that. People who are even general moviegoers or people that are interested in culture, which, okay, maybe that's a East or West Coast thing compared to the heartland, but it's still something that's available to the general population. If I went out and just said, here's looking at you, kid, I do think there is at least some recognition of that and where it comes from. And most people will know who Bogart is, and this is probably his most iconic His signature film. If I wasn't related to you two, I wouldn't have a clue. I barely know who he is. (laughs) Okay. I'm just... If, if we hold that to be the case, then no movie would ever reach a 10 that's over, like, 50 years old. There are a few, but it's it's hard. This is an 80-year-old film that we're still yeah, talking about. Yeah, I love about. it. I love the movie. I'm just making points that it's not as... You guys are putting it in such a niche because of you're like, I just don't agree. So what are you willing to compromise on, if anything? I'll go up a quarter of a point. You're going to force me to go down a half a point? Well, I can go up a third. I can go up to a third. That's that's all I'm given. <laughs> I just don't think it's <sighs> as... In the public, it's just not as much as you guys are. You're, you're, such, you're such a narrow view of it. I look at it more broadly. <laughs> so, Dad, I think we have to go with a 9.35. That's fine. So Legacy drops a few tenths of a point from 9.88 to 9.35. Wow. All right. Impact significance. We originally had an 8.25. We moved that up to a 9 at the time. If we're talking from the immediacy afterwards, Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart became household names. They were huge stars. They did each a bunch of movies after this. They both won Oscars. I think Bergman won twice within the five years after this picture, and Bogart had to wait a few years, but finally got his about 10 years later. This film was nominated for a bunch of awards. It won Best Picture at a time when, you know, that was a little bit more sparse as to what those films were doing, and it did good business at the time. I think from an audience standpoint, there was a clear declination that these were two stars that they loved the film and it kind of took on a life of its own. I think a nine is probably warranted. I don't think this is near the heights of some other films that we've had that have huge, like 10 out of 10 immediate impact scores from a box office. But I think a five for the industry and a four for the audience seems about appropriate for me, even a 4.5 and a 4.5. All right, Allison, be the turd in the punch bowl. No, I was actually going to agree with you on this one. It's a four for the Ooh. audience and a five for the industry. I, As I said, the impact, they the, the stars did go on to do a lot. 
we're just looking at the five years as according to the notes I have. So that would make a big thing in the industry. I mean, it did win a lot of awards. It went on to do a lot of, it changed things in certain other ways. And I think that it had an impact on the industry. I mean, it was also made at a time when, you know, things were happening in the world. I would also go with a nine. All right. Dad? We had it right. It's a nine. 4.5, 4.5. Because it started out a little slow and built momentum, I can't go with a perfect five for the public. And the industry, it didn't have a clean sweep of any of the awards, but I will still go with a 4.5 because of that. Allison, you are willing to compromise on a nine? Uh, yes, I will compromise to a nine. Okay. All right, we move to novelty before our next commercial break here. So the original novelty score on this one was a 7.25. We moved it to a 9 on our second revisit. Dad, what do you think on the novelty score? There are not that many ensemble casts with this level of character actors involved. The closest thing I could think of was the Best Picture winner with Lionel Barrymore and James Stewart. Frank Capra directed it, and I'm drawing a blank as to the name of the film. You can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. It's the only other film I could think of with that level of of character actors involved in it. So I think we had... Grand it. Hotel. Okay. So there aren't very many. but they And when they were done, and they were done well, they deserved a best picture. So I think we had it right to begin with, and I'm going to stick with the nine that we had. I have a tough one on this one for novelty. I think its execution is high. So if we were to split the category, which we really don't do with novelty, we just give an overall score. But I often give additional points for execution. I think this is a high degree of execution by accident. Like there are so many things that just unintentionally went well with this film, but it doesn't seem to get really many notes wrong for me. Dare I say, I I would have a hard time placing that there's any truly perfect film because it's all subjective, but this is probably as close as it's going to get or at least would be among the closest for me as a perfect film. It doesn't seem to drag very much. It is a film that works on a fairly tight scale. It has a great classic ending scene. It's whatever you kind of want it to be. But I have a hard time as far as the audacity. I mean, did it really do anything daring? Did it reinvent things? No. And a lot of the films at the time were about war and what our place in the world was supposed to be. I mean, the previous year's winner was Mrs. Miniver, and that was a war film. So I'm having a bit of a hard time on this one. I think my inclination right now is an eight, but... I'm willing to move around as necessary. I'm not overly familiar with all the movies from that time period, as I'm not really, really into movies. But I don't think it really pushed much for boundaries, as Tom was saying, like, there's so many other war movies out at that time, or war movies that referenced the culture and what was going on at that time period. So I don't think it really created any new genres. It didn't really start much for debates. It is so it it was a good movie. It started to, it really, you know, launched a couple of people. It did a lot of stuff, but I would give it an eight. I just, I don't think it, according to the 
things you have on your rubric, I would not grade it any higher than that. It just did not push things much further than any of the other movies that were coming out at the time. So if our original score was a 7.25, we moved it up to a 9. I think if we either moved it to an 8.5 or an 8.25, that's kind of like straddling the difference between those two scores. Would you have a hard time moving down to the 8.25, Pop? I'm willing to go to an 8.5. I, It doesn't feel that much different than an 8, but I guess where where's everybody at? Allison? Convince me that I should move my score. Again, I, I point to the fact that this was an ensemble cast. It was really a critique of American indifference to the war and blame changes kind of as America had to change ideas. And it was kind of a, I don't know, caricature of American thought towards war, which was unique for the time. Well, I'll give you a couple of audacious moments as far as I'm concerned. Now, just thinking about it and trying to process, how could I maybe move Allison on something? One of these is we're talking openly about a woman who kind of had an affair and then definitely has an affair during the movie in 1942-43. And we're talking about during the Hayes Code era where that would have been extremely frowned upon. The entire plot hinges on this relationship. Now, granted, you're going to be able to get away with some of that because she thought that Laszlo was dead. And so having this other affair is... You know, she should be, as far as a Christian standpoint of view, be allowed to pursue other relationships. But then she tries to go back to Bogart, and that's kind of the revolving crux of the the final point of action. As far as that goes, I think that's significant. You also have the best friend of Rick Blaine is a black man. Yes. Now, yes, he is kind of a minstrel part in this one, so it was a little bit more palatable to the general audience at large of the time, but he still had connection. He was with him in Paris. He was his kind of confidant. He was the one that's trying to protect him from Ilsa. You know, there there is some significance to that as well. And then third, I will make this as a marker, and maybe this is more for classicness than novelty, but this is the first production that I can really remember that a lot of the cast was made up of refugees and specifically Jewish actors that had fled Europe from the Nazis. And so I do think it has a little bit more resonance among that aspect of the crowd to be able to come up. But then again, I also had originally scored this at eight, so. (laughs) I'll add one more. Name another film where it was openly discussed that somebody like Claude Rains would exchange political favors for sex it's not just implied it's overt yeah okay all right i'll go up to an 8.5 all right i think that's we've talked ourselves enough into it all right so to recap what we've had so far we had a 9.35 for legacy nine for impact significance and an 8.5 for novelty we have moved slightly down on the original and second legacy scores. We stayed the same as our second impact significance score, and we've just dropped slightly from our second novelty score, but above the original novelty score that we had for this film. So let's take another quick break, and we'll be right back. 
Before we jump back into the episode, releasing in the early part of this August, friend of the show Adam Hitchcock of the Streaming Circuit Podcast and I are back with our special monthly series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe where we will be discussing each film from the original Iron Man up through Avengers Endgame. The first half of each show will be on his feed, and the second half we will apply the Stan Lee rubric to each film to determine the greatest Marvel film of all time. This month we're covering Thor from 2011. Don't miss out. Make sure you are subscribed to both feeds to get these episodes. What are you laughing at? No, just the uh, play or the pun on the pun. Yeah. All right. Classicness. We went from a 9.25 originally to a 10 last time. Dad, I have a feeling you, you think the 10 is warranted. Yes, it is. Because... I mean, we have a strong female character. We have a black man as a main character. We have a ton of people speaking Russian, Dutch, French. Italian. Italian. We have Hungarian Jews. Yes. And a lot of more refugees. Even Conrad Vlit, or Vliet, that uh, was the Nazi, he was married to a Jewish woman, which is why he ended up fleeing Nazi Germany. I'd have a real hard time grading this down. I I think a 10 probably is about right. I mean, it should probably be up there with The Wizard of Oz as some of the most classic films we've ever seen. Is this a movie you'd show to kids? No. So, I mean, if you're going to hold that against it, it's a little bit different. But we're usually not judging this based on what you can show to children. I just don't think there's really anything wrong with this film. It's about as classic Hollywood as you're going to ever get. I would also agree on a 10. I don't really think there's any specific areas I can think of, like lines or areas where that it wouldn't translate properly into today's society, you know, where now everything has to be so politically correct. I don't think they had much for that. They might have had a little bit here and there, but like, I don't think there's anything overly much that wouldn't translate well to today's society and all the diversity and the different types of cast i think it does and it's it's just a very good film so i'll also give it a 10 any help with the math uh no but are you willing to compromise on a 10 Mm, darn um reluctantly yes okay rewatchability our original score was a nine we moved it up to a 9.5 I think that's about right. 9.5 for me. I mean, it's not among my favorite films of all time, but it is one I've heavily rewatched. And I have a feeling Allison's going to torch the rewatchability score on this one. So, Dad, 9.5, 10, where are you at? Well, I'm going to institute a new rewatchability test. It's the Bob Ross test, which is I could put Bob Ross on and watch The Joy of Painting at any time. And it will also allow me to relax and fall asleep and wake up and have no problems. So I'm going to say it's the same thing. I could put I could put this film on at any time and watch it. I could also put it on, fall asleep, wake up, have no problem with doing it. So I'm going to go with a 10. You guys are going to hate me. <laughs> I would probably give it a six or a six and a half. I've seen it twice in my life, and this last time I had such a hard time rewatching it. Not because it's not a good movie; it's a great movie. I just it was just so hard to rewatch it for me, and 
It's not one that I'm going to constantly be going back to. It's not the fact that I wasn't doing this. I probably would have gone years without seeing it again. I only watched it on the fluke that I was watching Gilmore Girls to begin with. So, like, I just, I don't think that people, and like I said, with today's society, people have seen it maybe once, maybe twice. I don't think people are going out and watching it over and over and over again. Like, it's just not happening. Like, maybe you guys are. But, like, the average casual moviegoer, as we were saying, is not going to go back and rewatch this over and over. Find some people who've watched it more than four times in their life. All right. So let me try this. I know Dad's trying to institute this Bob Ross test, which... What the fuck, man? What the... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I get where you're coming from, but it's a weird test. But we had a different test that we started to make for this particular model that you heard the last time. Is this a movie you're likely to put on? You're saying roughly no. No. What's out of five, what, what's the likelihood you would ever put this on? Three. Okay. And what is the likelihood you would leave it on once it's on? Two. I would have thought that would have been higher, but okay. So really what I you're at you, is... I really had a hard time. I kept picking up my phone and I kept... It's not that I don't like it. It's that I just really struggled to stay with it. I know it was a short movie, but like I ended up turning it off and going on to something else and then coming back to it later. Like, So really what we're doing is, is a battle against your attention span. Yes, but it's also not just me. I'm like, literally, I could pull all the people I work with and they've maybe seen it twice. Okay, what's the age diversity of the group that you work with? Any, I work with people all the way from recent college graduates up to retiring. Okay. So there is at least like a wide swath. There is. And I can guarantee that only a couple of them, have a, a very small handful, and I work with probably a hundred different teachers and admin and, it, and all of those people, small handful has seen it more than twice. Just be, the rate at which you see it is not indicative of its rewatchability score. No, it's not. But like, are you going to want to rewatch it? Are you going seeking it out? Are you thinking about it? Are you pulling it off? Like if when it was DVD, were you pulling it off the shelf and rewatching it? Were you, when you're scrolling through um, Max and you're, you see it, are you going to click on that movie over one of the other ones? No. So since this is our most subjective category, Dad, what do you think? Should we just average this one out? I guess it's gonna it's it's gonna plummet to about forty on the list now. I'm sorry. I just I'm trying to get it higher. I am, but I just can't see people pulling it out and rewatching it over and over again. So, Allison, you've given three different numbers for us to work with now during the process of this. You gave a six or a six point five. Then you gave a five during our test run. So what would you say it actually sits at? Because that will make a difference to the average, I guess. I Let me look at your rubric here. And uh, as a teacher, you know, you got to follow the rubric. All right. I'll go to a 7.5. Final answer. Okay. You're not going to phone a friend? Nope. I've already debated it. All right. So if that's going to be your criteria there, then it moves up to a straight nine. Which is what we had it at originally. Does that make you happy, Dad? Ecstatic. I compromised, okay. He, he is a little upset. 
I know he is, but I compromised. I did my best. To be fair, this movie has steadily dropped in the audience score portion of things. It originally was a 9.5 because we only did the Rotten Tomatoes score. And you'll be happy to know, over both iterations, the Rotten Tomatoes score has stayed the same at a 9.5, or a 95% for their purposes. However, we added in the Google score last time of an 86% that like this film, so that dropped it to a 9.05. And unfortunately, it has also come down yet again to an 83%, putting us at an 8.94 audience score. Damn Google users. Case in point, though, on the rewatchability stuff there. If people are rating it that low, they're not rewatching it. Again, to repeat the categories, we had a 9.35 for Legacy, a 9 for Impact Significance, an 8.5 for Novelty, a 10 for Classicness, a 9 for Rewatchability, and an 8.9 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of... So it drops to a 54.75. The original score on this one was a 53. It moved up to a 56.43. So, Dad, you predicted it was going to fall into the 40s, correct? Well, based on her original score on the, on the uh, classicness or rewatchability, but I'll say it's 31. 31. Yep. All right. Well, I did my best. It's fine, Allison. I know. You did basically what I asked for. You you took the hits. Yeah. I, I tried to bring a different perspective. That's what we asked you to do. Our original score on this one was a 53. If that had still held, it would be either 13 or 14. It would be between 13 and 14. That's currently on the list. So at a 54.75, it drops from the number two spot on the list to number five. Oh, okay. It's between North by Northwest and Saving Private Ryan. That's a decent spot to fall. All right, I can live with it. So the current matchup, if if this holds then, of the top 10 would be High Noon at 10, The Godfather at 9, All the President's Men at 8, Raiders of the Lost Ark at 7, Saving Private Ryan at 6, 5 for Casablanca, 4 for North by Northwest, 3 for 12 Angry Men, 2 for Jaws, and the crowning achievement of this show, The Dark Knight at number one. I've seen five of those. I'm impressed. Yeah, you should be. <laughs> we, we've done okay, Dad. Yeah. Well, if you hadn't, if you had not admitted seeing North by Northwest, that's like I've seen that an one annual event for my birthday. I know. I was going to say, we've seen that all the time. I did go see a movie recently. I went and saw The New Little Mermaid. Oh, you and four other people. No, it it's a top five opening weekend grocer this year. It was, so far, okay. it's been my favorite live action movie. They did a really good job with it. Okay, it just did not terrible. sell well in Europe or China. Okay, so be it. But no American movie does well in China these days. No, and well, in Europe, it's it's a backlash uh, because of race racial issues. Next Tuesday, I'm going to go see the new Barbie movie. Good, you'll probably like it. Yes, it's I go, very good. I go on Tuesdays after work. I go see the movies Keith doesn't want to see. And it's $5 movie day. Oh, you should drag him along. Because he would cringe through most of it. Well, first of all, Tuesday is his birthday, but also he's an Eagle River. Yeah, he'd be so mad watching that film. 
why. Yeah, so he'd be standing up shouting at the screen. I'm not going to tell you because it would kind of ruin the movie, but yeah. It's a women empowerment movie housed inside of a character or a piece of pop culture that's usually meant to or has been thought of as an appropriation tool. When are you guys doing Legally Blonde? I haven't put it on the list yet. You gotta do Legally Blonde, because the new one is supposed to come out this year. I don't know when yet, there's no release date, but everything says 2023. I would guarantee it's not coming out this year. I really hope it comes out soon, though. I'm really excited for it. It's a star-driven, likely film that is produced by somebody who's not going to be able to promote it. More than likely, Bruce it's going to get... Bruce not producing it? I think she is. That's why I would say it's going to get pushed, because the actors are on strike, along with the writers. And so, by that extent, they're pushing a lot of movies that need stars to promote them. In an era when already they're struggling with selling films as it is. Is, is uh, this a reboot, or...? It's Legally Blonde 3! Okay, so is Reese Witherspoon playing? Yes, yes. Okay, so now it's her is a... I don't know. Middle-aged lawyer? No, she's supposed to be running for president, I think. Oh, okay. Because that was the end of the second one. Because that's really believable. Yeah. I don't know. No, it really, unfortunately, is. Uh, okay. Yeah. Is she running as a Republican or a Democrat? That'll say a lot. Legally Blonde. Sweet Home Alabama. Those are my two. Love those two. You guys don't do romances very often, so you need to throw no, them in there. No, we do. Mm. And mom's usually on for them. Those yes. two are mine, because those are like my favorite Reese Witherspoon movies, and she's my favorite actress. Okay. All right, let's move through the rest of this pretty quickly, if we can. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Sue Marks, 92. American documentary film director and producer, did uh, Young at Heart, won the Oscar in 1987. Pamela Blair, 73, American actress. She was in Chorus Line, Annie, Beavis and Butthead Do America. Arthur Rubin, 97, American singer and actor, was in the Patty Duke show in the 50s and the film The Producers. I would assume that's the 1960s, 69 version with, that Mel Brooks did. Bill Getty, 68, American television producer. He uh, produced The View. Mark Thomas, 68, American film composer. Twin Towers, The Final Curtain. Agent Cody Banks, 2, Destination London. And <laughs> then... That movie... Okay, somebody had to do the score for it. And then lastly, we lost Tony Bennett, 96, American singer. I left my heart in San Francisco, rags to riches, because of you. 20-time Grammy winner. I think he won a Grammy only a few years ago with Lady Gaga. Yeah, he had, I think, the best album uh, in like 2014. But I I only saw 18-time Grammy winner. It doesn't matter. Either way, uh, you forgot. He's also an actor. Oh, I didn't. Uh, what What did he act in? He played himself in Analyze This. <laughs> yeah, okay. So we remember these here for their contributions to the arts with a moment of silence in their honor.
Thank you. All right, some quick remaining questions. Just some plot holes I was picking through as I was watching this. Why are two German couriers carrying letters of transit from the French General de Gaulle? Do they actually say General de Gaulle? Yes. Or does it just say de Gaulle? It says General de Gaulle multiple times during the course of the film. Okay. It's a MacGuffin. It, you know, that's Hitchcock's I understand, phrase. but... It has nothing to do with anything because even if letters of transit, like any of the uh, uh, Nazis couldn't say, uh, just stop everybody. We're not honoring letters of transit. But they weren't in charge of that area of Morocco. It was French Morocco, controlled by Vichy France. Which was a fascist regime and uh, would follow whatever the Nazis told them to do. So it doesn't matter. Yes, it's a plot hole, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. I I mean, there's there's a few problems with the MacGuffin portion of this, but, you know, you, you don't question it too much because it would get into the movie logic. Yeah. So, Renault makes a point of pointing out that Rick only or will never drink with customers and then makes a big deal the fact that he actually sits down and drinks with Ilsa and Laszlo as customers, but doesn't make a big deal before that when he drinks with Major Strasser. I don't think he drank with Strasser. I think he just sat there. Even so, that's customer interaction. Yeah, well... Let's start drinking with. When did Rick decide that he was going to put Ilsa and Laszlo on the plane? When he went to free Laszlo. He knew what he was going to do the whole time. Even though they had, what was it, five endings? This was the first one they shot. They decided this is the right one. Okay, but so he would have had to have decided before he goes into the police station. He knew what he was going to do. He knew he had to sacrifice. This is, uh, oh, what was the character in Tale of Two Cities? It's a far, far better thing. I, I don't know because I've never read the book. <sighs> well, I've, I forgot your English teacher teaching English never taught Dickens. Yes, it, it would be like excluding Jesus Christ from the Bible. Charles Darnay? Yes. Google for the win. <laughs> okay. Remaining questions for either of you? No, I'm good. None. All right. Quick final thoughts on Barbenheimer. Both great films. Both highly recommend that everybody goes to see both of them, if you can. Um, Allison, your attention span is going to be way too short for a three-hour Oppenheimer film. Nope. It's barely going to survive a two-hour Barbie movie. Yes. I think, actually, Barbie could have been cut for about 10 or 15 minutes and made Probably. it a little stronger film. You guys watched it already? Yeah, we watched both last Saturday. We were part of the huge social media campaign called Barbenheimer that everybody was going out for their double feature on Saturday to see it. It is one of the biggest domestic opening weekends ever. And I think it's the first time in basically ever that two movies crossed over a, uh, like, I think both got over $80 million in the same weekend. I think Barbie was 155 million. I think Oppenheimer just got above 80 million. Huge opening weekend for both. And I would think that Barbie will be on track eventually for crossing the billion dollar marker. May yes. actually surpass the Mario Brother movie as the highest grossing film for this year. I don't think Oppenheimer will do that well, but for taking a fairly big risk 
with Christopher Nolan and then Warner Brothers being very vindictive, putting Barbie on the same weekend, it's still going to prove yet again that Christopher Nolan, by just virtue of being him, can open a movie. Word of mouth is going to have a huge play. Oppenheimer is not going to have anything, you know, you know it's going to be tailed off in the next several weeks, but it's going to linger. I think Oppenheimer has a chance for $400 million. I think it'll probably surpass that. If we're talking about the global gross, I think it'll well surpass that. I think it'll probably get over 500, close to 600 million. But the standpoint of where these two films are at, I would say if we're doing this show in five years, they're probably both going to be on the show. Probably. I would be fascinated to see how it does in Japan, Oppenheimer. Ooh, that's an interesting question. Especially because they don't really show the destruction on film, and they go through some of the grappling of whether or not to use the bombs in the first place. It, it is an interesting question, but I don't know how strong the market is there for American films to begin with. I know that they have a fairly strong film culture of their own. But that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. I am putting myself to the fullest possible use which is all I think that any conscious entity can ever hope to do. Next week, for our 175th episode, we discuss our third Stanley Kubrick film, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Written and directed by Stanley Kubrick, co-written by Arthur C. Clarke, starring Keir Delea, Gary Lockwood, and William Sylvester. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com, sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 